Hello and welcome again to another episode of CISO Tradecraft. This is G. Mark Hardy and I'm pleased to be with you today to talk about an interesting topic about, well, slay the dragon or save the princess. We're really talking about ransomware and kind of the meta question that we're going to talk about there is do you pay the ransom or do you hold out and you try to recover it yourself? It's a little bit more complicated than you might think, so stay tuned and let's look to some of the details that are involved with that potentially difficult decision. You see, ransomware is a booming business. There's been some interesting estimates out there in terms of the amount of uh, cyber crime that has been uh, taking place. I've seen estimates as high as $6 trillion for the year. Now, I'm thinking, gee whiz, guys, really, it's that bad? Why don't we just go ahead and maybe have our government get into that, and then they can essentially pay all of the, uh, the bills for the government? Well, of course not. That's kind of ridiculous. But the thing is, is that if you're looking at that um, estimate, and that was from Cybersecurity Ventures, the thought is, is that this is the greatest transfer of economic wealth in history. It's more profitable than the global illegal drug trade. So like it or not, what we find out is that cybercrime is a huge amount of money involved. Now, it's kind of interesting. Alan Baller, who's a founder of SANS, had said a couple times, sort of in jest, that any organized crime group that is not into cybercrime should be sued for malpractice, essentially saying it's such a huge amount of money and so easy to make money that they need to be doing that. Well, how about ransomware? Is that a big part of it? Meh, it estimates about a mere $20 billion. Now, normally, I'd think $20 billion was a ton of money. Well, it kind of is, at least for me anyway. But lately, as we've been seeing trillions kicked around in terms of government budgets and bailout plans and things such as that, it doesn't seem to be that much. Well, take a look at that at a corporate balance sheet. It's not too many companies could take a hit that big. Now, obviously, that's the aggregate, but we're looking at these transactions, if you will, about every 11 seconds, and it's really the fastest growing element of the cybercrime. Now, when we talk about ransomware, to what are we referring? Essentially, ransomware is a demand for payment in exchange for access to something, encrypted files, a promise not to reveal compromise information. It's really extortion by any other name, let's face it. Now, it's not just organized crime doing it. There are individuals who can go ahead, you can download a kit. You don't have to write the software yourself, it's available. There's even ransomware as a service which essentially says, hey, go ahead and try to uh, infect others and we'll split the profits with you when they pay. Now, I've also seen one form of ransomware. I don't remember the family of it. It was a couple of years ago that said, ha ha, your files are encrypted. But if you can help us infect three other entities and they pay, we'll give you your files back for free. Now, how's that for a friend not to have? Anyway, what we're looking at is an most of these cases, it's easy money for the criminals. Why? Because this crime is being committed outside the jurisdictional reach of the victim's law enforcement. And as a result, there's very little chance that Officer Friendly is going to knock on your door 
and uh, take you away. Now, depending on what part of the world you are in, Officer Friendly might come by and say, hey, where's my percentage for making sure you stay safe? But by and large, ransomware is a fairly low-risk activity for the bad guys. And therefore, we cannot expect for it to go away anytime soon based upon a perceived risk by the attacker. Compare that to, for example, you set up a burglar alarm, and then perhaps a physical burglar is worried about being apprehended by law enforcement. Or you get a big, nasty, snarly dog with sharp, pointy teeth. And you're worried about getting bitten by the dog. Okay, there's some risk there. But in this particular case, eh, pretty much no risk. Now, how do we do the deal? Cryptocurrency. Why not? It's relatively difficult, if not nearly impossible, to trace. It's non-reversible, that's for certain. And it's pretty fast. You don't have to wait three days for a clearing transaction to go through. You don't have to worry about the 60-day clawback you might get with a credit card as a consumer to say, you know, I'm really not pleased with my ransomware purchase. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to dispute this charge. Cryptocurrency, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later, really gives us a one-way diode, if you will, financially, where funds go one way and they're never going to go back the other. Well, what a great way to go ahead and facilitate crime. Kind of the reason early on, I mean, it's interesting. I've been doing talks about Bitcoin and blockchain uh, for about nine years now. And it was like, well, gee, Mark, you got to have like millions. He says, no, not really. Why not? Well, in looking at all of this and the cryptocurrency, at least in the early years, it was a purview of what? Criminals, Silk Road people doing uh, arms trade, drug trade, child pornography, really wasn't the company I wanted to keep. And yet what we're seeing today is a surge in the value of these cryptocurrencies creating multimillionaires all over the place, including, unfortunately, some of these ransomware operators. I mean, wouldn't it be an interesting business opportunity, assuming it's legit, that the results of a particular investment could multiply three, five, or ten times in value in a very short period of time. As a result, I think we're going to see with more hype, with more knowledge about it, uh, Coinbase going public in April of 2021, with Bitcoin hitting higher and higher records, with some of the altcoins coming along, that uh, we're not going to see uh, this drop away anytime soon. Okay, well, enough about that. We'll, we'll kind of come back to that later. But let's, let's get back to the real problem here about ransomware. How do we mitigate that? Of course, if we think of the NIST cybersecurity framework, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. There's a lot of things we can do from that perspective. From an identify perspective, knowing our systems, knowing our hardware, our software, maintaining our vulnerability uh, posture in terms of the protect, keep everything up to date, inform our users, keep everything patched. But the thing is, when we go to the identify, protect, detect, uh, protect assumes that if you could do 100% protection, you'd never need to detect, right? You're perfect. We just go ahead and set up our defenses and go home. Hmm, sounds like a Maginot line. Well, such a thing would be an imaginary line in the world of cyber because things evolve and change way too quickly. And as a result, what we want to be able to think about is we have to have something a little bit better. We need to have some way to deal with what happens when something gets through that outer perimeter. One of the best things we can start with 
or policies and procedures. I know it's boring, but you got to have something in writing and you need to practice it. This has to be something that's done on a regular basis, whether it's going to go through in just a walkthrough or a tabletop exercise. I don't actually recommend encrypting your own files, hoping to get them back. Uh, but the idea is, is that you could create the opportunity for your team to have dress rehearsals. It turns out that by practicing that, you're going to be able to respond a lot better. The late Admiral Hyman Rickover, the father of the American nuclear Navy, had said that anyone who stops to think in an emergency shows a severe lack of training. Okay, well, let's make sure people are trained. What else can we do besides having the policy and procedures and, and practice them? A robust security program with privilege management, multi-factor authentication, cut down the opportunity for attackers to be able to get a toehold in your network. If they cannot authenticate in, that slows them down. If the privilege management is set up such that if a user gets ransomware because they clicked on dancing bears or did something dumb, but they cannot reach into your cloud storage, they can't reach into your servers, they can't even reach laterally side by side, then okay, you've You've localized the damage. Laptop catches fire. All right. Well, if you got good backups, if you got a good program of being able to replace it, yeah, we go deal with that. The danger, of course, is that because of the huge amount of money available, a lot of R&D is going into this, this malware. And, of course, every time somebody pays the ransom, a little bit of that gets plowed back into, hey, let's go ahead and make it worse for you. Thank you for paying. Thank you for financing us. Of course, brings up the interesting dilemma we'll talk about later about, you know, what we, should we pay or not? But meanwhile, we're still focusing on kind of the prevent detect. User awareness, huge for prevent. Uh, active content blocking, also huge. Making sure that we're able to go ahead and perhaps interdict the ability of some of this code to reach back to the command and control servers or the um, place where it gets its crypto keys and the like. Once you're infected, it's a little bit late for that. But again, if you can go ahead and prevent, that's great. How about backups? Great, we all do backups. How about offline backups? You see, backups are engineered to protect against failure. They're not engineered to protect against malice. And therefore, if something is malicious and we say, well, you know, I've got my backups constantly connected. I'm always backing up my system. Guess what? <laughs> you just encrypted all your backups as well. Thank you very much. That'll be a little bit extra because the ransomware company says, you know, we had to do an awful lot of encrypting and uh, we need a little bit more for that. Okay. Now, if you're using Windows 10, and please tell me you're not using Windows 7 anymore, okay? You got to get, get with the times. Why? Because Windows 7 is not being supported. As they say, enemies come and enemies go, or friends come and friends go, but enemies accumulate. Well, the same thing can be said for vulnerabilities. Vulnerabilities accumulate. At least with Windows 10, it's being patched on a regular basis. And Windows 10 has ransomware protection built in. Did you know that? Look at the settings, start typing in ransomware, and you'll see that it has things such as controlled folder access. Now that allows the operating system to interdict what's actually gonna be able to write to certain folders. Now I've set it up such that 
when you look at the locations where the users are going to be storing files locally, it's not all over the place. It's kind of the equivalent of the old My Documents directory, but it's in a special place and only designated applications can write to it. And it's interesting when you set this up, I don't think Microsoft allows in there some of its own stuff. I think you have to actually activate Word and Excel and PowerPoint, and it takes a little bit of tuning. But once you've got it tuned, it works great because something else comes along, tries to write to where your documents are, it goes, Oop, sorry, it got blocked. Now you can make an exception, but you got to go through UAC and make sure that you have the admin password, etc. It's a It's very effective when you have a stable configuration. The other element in ransomware protection for Windows 10 are OneDrive file recovery. Do you have OneDrive turned on? Can it run in the background? We had a laptop that uh, broke last year, and it wasn't ransomware. It was just a SSD failure. Stuff happens. And we got a call from the user saying, man, I was working on something, and my, my laptop just went dead. All right. Well, we went ahead and we shipped out a new one to the guy. It turned out that when he got online and kind of looked at the configuration, he had lost about 20 minutes worth of work. That's awesome from an IT recovery perspective to say, if something goes wrong. And the nice thing is about Microsoft is if you're, especially if you're using a paid subscription, they're going to keep generational backup. So if something goes ahead and ransoms and you back up the ransom, don't worry about it. It didn't overwrite the previous version. But be careful about being able to know how many generations you have and also from a log perspective, where do things come from? If you're on a full Microsoft uh, license, enterprise license, you're going to get 30 days worth of logs easily. If you're on something like an academic license, it's only seven days, and it's a little bit harder to do the forensics. Now, what if we choose to pay a ransom? It turns out that, well, that's not really your decision. This is not the decision for the IT security executive, not the CISO, not the head of technology, not the head pen tester, not the person who screwed it up. It's really reserved for the highest levels because it does involve a risk beyond just the loss of the payment. Now, some people would say, well, you know, what if we don't get our files back? Well, we'll talk about that and we'll talk about the figures. And you're actually, it's actually pretty good odds that you will. But there's a reputational risk when people find out about it. You have to report it. How do you account for the money? If you're a publicly traded company and you have to file a 10Q, how do you put down the fact that a certain amount of money is no longer under your control? There may be a, a reporting requirement that requires you by law and regulation to put it into your report. Now, anytime you have to report on something you don't want to talk about, as Warren Buffett and said, if you're going to read an annual report, start with the footnotes because it's the stuff that the company didn't want to tell you. And this is where things would go. Of course, a little tiny fine print at the bottom. And if an organization ends up having to uh, or choosing to pay ransomware, it'll probably go there. But another deal, a potential real problem is violating the laws and sanctions of your own jurisdiction, and in particular, the United States. There's a couple of bases from which you can make this decision about do we pay or not. One is an ethical, moral one. Well, let's not support criminals. That sounds like a really bad idea. I know, but your whole company is at a hard stop and it's costing you a fortune every hour. Hmm. But I don't support criminals. Got it. We'll put that in your certificate of dissolution. 
This company went out of business not supporting criminals. Eh. There's a patriotic approach. Hey, ransomware payments will benefit illicit actors. They can undermine our national security, even our foreign policy objectives of the United States. Well, sounds like that's not the case if you got some kid in mom's basement running ransomware, but there are some nation states that finance their budgets through cybercrime, quite handily, by the way, and they are not the folks that completely agree with America. We'll just, just uh, we'll leave the names out of that, right? <clears throat> North Korea. But hey, give them credit. They uh, do a pretty um, bang up job of collecting money that way. But there's probably the best basis is practicality. What is the cost of your downtime? And the cost of your downtime could be orders of magnitude greater than the ransom amount. Look at something like the city of Baltimore. They estimate, what, um, $11 million or $18 million, city of Atlanta, because it wouldn't pay a $50,000 ransom. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a financial officer who made that decision, you're fired. Well, it's not my money. It's a taxpayer's money. I don't know. It's nice to be moral. It's nice to be patriotic. But when you're going to pay orders of magnitude more because you failed to prepare in the first place, there is gross negligence going on there. I'm not getting into the politics of it. I'm just pointing out of the fact that we need to have some accountability. And if you pay attention to what we got for you here, you're probably not going to find yourself in that bad situation. Ransomware really itself has morphed in the last few years. It used to be an availability attack. Click on something, oops, your files are encrypted, pay a ransom, get your files back. All right, CIA, confidentiality, integrity, here's availability, it's just as important. We don't usually look at the A in the CIA, but yeah, it's a big deal. But more frequently these days, it's also a confidentiality attack. Hmm, hey, we encrypted your files, pay us. Yeah, I got a good backup. We thought about that. We're going to publish your files. What? Yep, that PII you have, those personal information details on your customers, your employees, credit card numbers, internal negotiations, client data that you have agreed on a, a do not share basis. You go ahead and you have all these agreements. Yeah, we'll publish that. And then you're going to go deal with the regulators. Or you could just pay a ransom. Pick your choice. Interesting. Kind of a, a dilemma of you know, two really not very good choices there. In the future, might we even see an integrity attack? Not trying to give any bad guys bad ideas, but imagine if they came in and said, oops, your financials have been altered. If you go ahead and report your quarterly numbers, it's going to turn out that some eights were turned into nines and some other things were different, and you just violated a whole bunch of laws by falsely reporting information. And now what happens? Starbanes Oxley says you're going to trade your pinstripes for orange because you just attested to false financial information. Or you could pay the ransom and we'll show you what numbers to change back. Ooh, that's scary. Hasn't happened yet. I don't think. Not going to want to ever say you heard it here first, but come on, we're security professionals. We need to start thinking around the corner and protecting in advance. Now, of course, the real question is, do you get your files back? Coveware had published a study on the ransomware marketplace report, and they said 99% of 
of victims that pay receive the decryption tool. That's really good odds. And 96% will report the tool decrypted and recovered their files. Well, from that perspective, it seems like sort of a slam dunk. But wait a minute. These are criminals. Why are they doing it? Turns out that if you think about it, there's sort of an unwritten pirate's code, so to speak, going on in ransomware. Hey, dude, if you get the money, give them their files back. Why? I've already got the money. Well, look, if you give them their files back, the word will get out. If you pay, you get your stuff back. If you screw with that model, if you just don't give them their files back, guess what's going to happen? People are going to stop paying, and we're all going to be unhappy, and we're coming after you. I remember when the NotPetya came out at first, and they said, hey, you can't decrypt these files. It was sort of a one-way encryption. They only had a, uh, a single Bitcoin address for everything. The email address was the same for everybody at Posteo that got taken down. And I'm thinking a bullet is going to be administered in Moscow to somebody because they kind of broke the rank. And then later we found out that it appeared to be a nation state weapon against Ukraine using exploits that took advantage of the eternal blue to spread laterally. So the ransomware portion sucked. That code was bad. It didn't really work well, but maybe it wasn't supposed to work well. But the worm part was great. But it turned out that, well, he got that from some professional software developers. All right. You get ransomware, you get a, a meeting of the minds, the executives get together, and one of the first things you got to ask about is, do we pay? Well, you should understand is the security lead some of the implications. You may or may not have a lawyer there, depending upon who's representing your company, but you, you really should. But the first thing you want to look at is the U.S. Treasury Department Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC Advisory. You see, OFAC designates malicious actors, those who are considered to be dangerous to the United States. You don't want to fund certain nation states. You don't want to fund certain foreign nationals who are considered to be, if you will, bad guys that the, the country itself doesn't like. And a lot of times they're going to name the ransomware developer. Authors of CryptoLocker and SamSam and WannaCry 2.0 and even Drydex have listed not only the name of the company, like Drydex, Evil Corp. Gotta love that. But Maxim Yakubets is listed personally on the OFAC list. These quote-unquote bad boys that are on the specially designated nationals and blocked persons list, the SDN, it is against the law to pay them. You're not allowed to do financial transactions. But I got ransomware. It was that family. Oh boy, sucks to be you. Why? Because before you pay the ransom, you need to pull that string to see where it might be going. OFAC has some permanent members on there from Cuba, Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, but it's actually got lists from Belarus to Zimbabwe, all listed on there in terms of different elements. And the penalties could be a whole lot worse than the ransomware event. Criminal penalties, up to a million dollars for doing business, quote unquote, with these people, or 20 years in prison. That doesn't sound like a really good uh, retirement plan for a CISO, does it? Civil penalties, up to a quarter million. Now, seizure and forfeiture of the goods involved probably doesn't pertain here, although... 
It also applies to those facilitating ransomware payments on behalf of a victim. I had a client who got ransomware and the question came up and I was talking to some of my other couple of security guys that said, Mark, make sure you know who it is. You cannot help them. You can't help them pay if it turns out that the ransomware family is on the OFAC list. Guess what? They were on the OFAC list and I had to kind of walk them through. I said, look, I cannot recommend that you pay. If you needed to, however, here is the mechanism because we talk about that, but you know, most criminals will show you how to go ahead and raise a Bitcoin. In that particular case, the company chose wisely. They said, we're not going to pay. And they ended up having to go ahead and reconstruct. It's a hassle, but sometimes you have to go ahead and make a business decision. Now, what if you chose to make the payment? There's a couple things that are going to potentially be a mitigating factor in the Treasury Department assigning penalties. One of them is, quote, the existence, nature, and adequacy of a sanctions compliance program, end of quote. All right, go take a look. Can you put your fingers on your sanctions compliance program easily? Do you even have one? You ever heard of one? Okay, get hot, because that's going to be the thing that could potentially save your bacon. The other thing is, under the OFAC enforcement guidelines, if a company does a, quote, self-initiated, timely, and complete report of a ransomware attack to law enforcement, quote, that's a significant mitigating factor. And if you cooperate with law enforcement before, during, and after, well, I guess you not really before, but during and after, that's going to be a mitigating factor, meaning what? You probably won't go to jail. You still are going to end up having to probably pay some sort of a fine. They say, look, we don't want you to pay it. But if your child were kidnapped and you call the FBI, they're going to say, well, we don't recommend paying ransom. However, it is your kid and we're not going to prevent you from doing so. Well, is ransomware amounts take it or leave it? Not really. A lot of ransomware families, if that's a good word for it, will settle based on some negotiated amount. And different groups will go ahead and a little bit more flexible, if you will, on the payment. In a way, the cyber extortion is sort of similar to personal injury lawsuit. There's sort of a target percentage. You see down all these TV lawyers, if you have a phone, you have a lawyer, or are you wrongfully injured, or anything like that. Well, what happens? These things aren't worked out in the court case from a blank piece of paper. The insurance companies and the lawyers all pretty much have almost a, uh, a rating card. And they said, well, let's see, that's a broken leg or that's the thing. That's about what it's worth in a courtroom. So let's settle for this. Now, be careful. You can't always bluff your way out of it. There was a major medical organization in Washington, D.C. a few years back. They got hit with a, I think, like a five Bitcoin ransom, which at the time wasn't all that much. And today it is. And they said, hey, you know, we're an American healthcare organization that we do good for the community and we help people out. Why would you want to hurt us? Wrong. Because the attacker said, really? You're Americans and you're healthcare? We have no idea who downloaded the stuff. It's 50 Bitcoin. We just increased the demand by up to 1,000%. At this point, consider utilizing an experienced firm for this step. There are 
individuals or firms that have experience negotiating. In fact, sometimes they negotiate over and over again with the same group. And it's sort of like, hello again, my friend. I see we meet again on the field of battle. And they work something out. 98% of ransom demands, as they said, are, uh, are, are going to be payable in Bitcoin. All right, which suggests we should probably know how to get Bitcoin. Now, I've observed that an executive trying to buy Bitcoin is like a grandmother trying to buy heroin. It's like, where do you start? So don't wait until you're in an emergency. Now, a lot of the opportunistic ransomware families will have sort of a click here and we'll show you how to get Bitcoin. But here's a thought. Plan ahead. You're the CISO. They're going to turn to you and say, what do we do about this? Establish an account at a reputable exchange, one that complies with the Know Your Customer, KYC, and anti-money laundering, AML rules. Now, to do so, for ex uh, you submit your personal information, identification documents, upload things such as driver's license or passport or photos of yourself, and at the lower limits, it's often done by software. You put in your country of residence, first name, last name, date of birth, residential address. It's a lookup and a table. They say, yep, this person exists. They're in a credit history. We know that this is human. Okay, fine. There you go. You can trade, I don't know, 1000 bucks a day or whatever it is. I remember initially it should be like $50 a day. Higher limits require additional verification. Upload an identity document, take a picture. Good option might be Coinbase. Coinbase with a public uh, in 14th of April, 2021, with a direct listing, your symbol is COIN, coin. Hit the market at 250, porpoised up to four and a quarter, settled down around 320. Uh, that wasn't an IPO per se. That was existing shares. They were just let go. And Andreessen Horowitz had a big uh, investment in that, about 25% of the Class A's. Very, very successful company. But Coinbase, Huge, huge. Q1 of 2021 showed they had more business than all of 2018 and 2019 combined. It's kind of hockey stick. Well, you create an account and establish a digital wallet. If you were able to go ahead and have straightforward, easy to understand credentials, the bots can go ahead. I mean, good bots, if you will, interpret and say, yep, that's legit. Create an account for them. However, if you have to go through and they say, hmm, you don't quite look like your driver's license photo or something isn't quite right, it might take several days to get that managed. And although Coinbase has a great reputation for being able to uh, get your transaction done, and they, they take a vig on it. I mean, that's how they make their money. Uh, it could take several days to go through that, and you may not have several days. Once you do that and you establish an account, you can establish a digital wallet. It's kind of like a bank account. Your, your balance is tracked, but your funds are going to be commingled. And it's probably safe to keep funds there. This is not Mount Gox back in 2014 when, well, all the money just sort of disappeared. And they're still trying to figure out where all that Bitcoin went. You can also link to a bank account or a credit card. As I said, more complete identity verification gives you higher limits. And you can fund that account typically with what's called fiat currency, basically issued by a government, not backed by gold or anything else. Nobody does that in the world. And said, here we go. But if you're funding it by a credit card or an ACH, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait until that transaction is irreversible because the exchange is not going to take on any risk of non-payment. Why should they? You're the one who wants the crypto. You're going to have to wire transfer funds. Cost you a little bit, but it's available more rapidly. 
Here's a thought. You could purchase the requisite amount of cryptocurrency that you might be needing. Plus a little bit more for the transaction and exchange fees because it doesn't go totally frictionless. Or maybe you just hold on for dear life. That is to say, let's buy the money and just keep it there. Now, your funds could be held in dollars or crypto. Pretty much you decide the risk you want to take. And now we have tethered coins, basically coins that are fixed, presumably, uh, to the value of something like a U.S. dollar. And you can look into those as well. But when a decision is made to meet a ransom demand, again, based on that earlier criteria of is it lawful? What's the financials of it? Does it make sense to do so? We could then initiate a transfer to the other Bitcoin address. Bitcoin addresses are pseudonymous or pseudonymous, I guess. I always like to throw an extra syllable in there. They, if they're used correctly, they only appear once and only once in the blockchain. That is to say, only amateurs will reuse the same public address because a wallet address is derived, forgetting a little bit of technicality, of the hash of a seed of and, and an index, which means I keep in increasing this index, I hash the two together. It's kind of like an HMAC, not exactly, but you can't reverse the hash. And, and since a wallet holder can use any number of indices, you can create pretty much any number of wallet addresses. I think two to 112th power or something like that. Pretty huge. If you're going to manually type in a destination, do it carefully. If you send a coin to a mistyped address, it's possible it's totally unrecoverable because you can't just pick a address for fun. It's a public-private key pair, and then it goes through some hashes and things such as that. It's not reversible. In fact, early on in the Bitcoin days, you used to be able to get sort of a vanity address just by churning and churning and churning and trying billions of combinations of generating keys until just by luck it happened to start with a, a couple character codes that you liked. Well, the addresses also have a built-in checksum. So a single character error is unlikely to result in a valid address, and chances are it's going to ask you to type it over. Although transactions move quickly, they can be on the block within a couple minutes. Typically, you wait several blocks. That is to say about 40 minutes, 50 minutes, and then you know for certain that this transaction is permanent. As I said before, depending on the ransomware family, you need to follow the instructions. Not Petya wasn't really ransomware. It demanded a ransom payment, but if you paid it, the money was lost. You just weren't going to get anything back. But as we talked about that ecosystem of ransomware operators, for the most part, their peer pressure creates this, if you will, honor among thieves. All right, what do we do? What's the takeaway action from this podcast? First of all, I recommend that you establish a relationship with your law enforcement agencies. See, a lot of times criminals, now do it before you get into ransomware, by the way. Uh, you criminals often say, don't call law enforcement or else. Do it anyway. They're not going to know. More importantly, it's also on the list of required actions to reduce the enforcement penalties and actions if a payment is deemed unlawful by the Treasury Department. Consider getting to know your law enforcement contacts in advance. The federal are best. I've had an opportunity to work with a number of FBI special agents. These are amazingly talented and dedicated people, many of them with advanced degrees, with a tremendous knowledge not only of law enforcement and technology, but also business. And that 
continues to impress me. Now, go back 15 years, I think it was only the San Francisco field office that I felt comfortable with working with. Today, I run into FBI agents literally all over the country. Well, I don't run into them, but they, I, run, I often get the privilege to teach them in a class was that these people are very impressive. If they're local law enforcement, it's helpful if they know what they're doing. Well, if you've got a local Barney Fife, he's probably not going to be the person you're going to want to go to. But if you say, hmm, this is a big deal, I should go ahead and get involved, where's a good place to start? How about InfraGuard? FBI's InfraGuard is a joint cons uh, arrangement it's, uh, with between federal law enforcement and local communities, companies, etc. It's InfraGuard, I-N-F-R-A-G-A-R-D.org. And you can join them if you're American. Now, be aware that they will do a basic background check. So if you forgot to return your library book in ninth grade, they're going to find about it. But in general, they do that background check on an as-they-can-get-to-it basis. It's not a high priority. You might say, hey, I want to join InfraGuard and take a little while. I've had the privilege to go and be part of that for over a decade. And I will do presentations for InfraGuard for pro bono. I, I make money as a keynote speaker, as a public speaker. And as a result, that's come on, how I feed my family, among other things that I do in terms of consulting and CISO work. But what I find out is that this is an organization worthy of giving something to, giving my time and energy. Have some policies and procedures in writing and practice your response. Don't just practice how to pay. Okay, fine. We talked about those mechanics. And go ahead. That's something you can do. Go ahead and today open up an um, address, fund it with a few bucks of Bitcoin, and move it from your left pocket to your right pocket. Yes, there's going to be a transaction fee, but you did it and you know how to do it. Emergency ever comes up again, guess what? You've already worked that mechanics out. And it's not unlawful to do so. You can move money from your left pocket to the right pocket. And as they say, though, in general, Bitcoin seems to be the coin of the realm, and it's the one that's done the best. All the altcoins, and there's literally thousands of them, have not necessarily been that goal. Now, we could get maybe an episode on all of those and look at things such as Monero, which is set up as a privacy coin, and some of the concerns there. But for the most part, you're going to be driving right down the center and using Bitcoin. Take a look at your backup and recovery procedures. What would you do if this repository of information, user hard drive, something up there in the OneDrive, something in the cloud, something in Box, whatever you happen to be connected to, what if that were unavailable? Basically, you're declaring it to be encrypted. Now, the nice thing is if it turns out you can't recover, you can declare it not encrypted anymore and proceed on. It's just a test. But kind of like the chaos monkey at uh, Netflix, which says we're going to go ahead and break things from time to time arbitrarily to see if you can recover from it. We might want to be able to make sure that we have a way to get back. Do you have a way to contact senior leadership promptly? And do you know the information that they need to make a decision? Do you have a public relations plan? Do you know how to go ahead and do the strategic communications? That's going to be important because you may have some notification requirements. Consider engaging a ransomware specialist on a contract basis. Again, a pre-established relationship with the legal terms and conditions already accepted can save some time in an urgent situation. And I've looked at some response companies, and they have some 
kind of hefty retainers. And it's like, well, you know, I really don't want to pay a retainer when I'm not actually needing you. I'd rather pay for you when I need you. But the obstacle then is the terms and conditions and getting it past legal. Well, here's a thought. Contact them and said, hey, send this over your TNC. We'd like to consider doing business with you and work them out. And if legal says, fine, great. If not, they say, well, we need this, we need this. And if you can work it out, great. Hey, when are you starting your program? Hey, uh, we'll get the money, we'll get the money. But meanwhile, if you ever had to go ahead and throw the switch, guess what? It's already worked out. Review your insurance policy language carefully. There might be an exclusion for, quote, acts of employees. The problem would be something like this. An insurance policy will protect you from things such as ransomware or cybercrime, except if acts of war, warlike acts, acts of employees, zombie apocalypse, some whatever they're going to put in there that says that they don't want to pay. Remember, insurance companies are not in the business of writing checks. They're in the business of cashing checks. It's a business. Anyway. Scenario, employee opens a trojanized attachment or clicks on a malicious link in an email. You get ransomware. Okay, great. I got insurance. You call them up, said, how to get in there? Well, employee clicked on something. Exactly. Guess what? We exclude acts of employees. But the employee didn't write the ransom. You know, but the employee did something. We're not paying. So be careful. You might want to ensure that that's all worked out and legal knows and contracting knows what it works. By the way, understand clearly the role of insurance when I assign risk. It does not reduce your reputational risk. It does not get your customers back if you've been offline for a while. It primarily helps you pay the bills when your revenue sources are denied. And unfortunately, if you're down for a while, all it does is provide for the orderly demise of your business because you can pay your bills while all your customers have wandered off someplace else. Go talk to your legal counsel. Like most CISO-level major IT events, it's not going to be just a technical issue. And the risk of violating OFAC or contract terms or insurance requirements can have significant effects. The best response is to have these really such you know, robust defenses you never get violated. So what's our summary here? Do your homework. Make sure you understand thoroughly the implications of ransomware and what it can do for your organization. Plan ahead. Establish relationships with legal, law enforcement, some mitigation consulting service, and the crypto exchanges. Run a dry run. Perform a dry run. Don't actually encrypt your files. Bad idea. But declare them unavailable for use and see what people do. Watch how people respond. Now, make sure you don't seriously interfere with operations. You don't want to go ahead and all of a sudden get called into the carpet because you screwed up some major deal because you thought it would be kind of a cool idea to make something unavailable right when it was needed. But there needs to be some realism in the scenario. And the nice thing is because if there is or becomes an urgent need for file access, you can turn that access back on. And finally, actually, as I said, transfer some cryptocurrency from one wallet to another. Actually learn how to do it. There's going to be transaction fees, but your funds will still be mostly available. I'm not saying put a ton of money in there, although I know that some organizations that have done so have done quite well. Nobefore, which is a security awareness uh, company, which is going public in 2021 with about a $2 billion valuation. I remember talking to their founder, Stu, and he said, yeah, we bought a bunch of Bitcoin because we put in a guarantee that if your 
employees take our security awareness training and later get ransomware, we'll pay the ransom. Well, never ever had to pay out a whole lot of Bitcoin because apparently they had really good training, but that Bitcoin investment became worth a lot of money. Interesting. And then lastly, make sure your policies and procedures reflect best practice. Ensure that you're doing the right stuff, that you're not breaking the law, that you're doing the right thing. And then talk to other professionals. Continue to educate yourself like you're doing now with this opportunity to get better. Well, hopefully you found this a valuable episode looking at the ransomware question. Do we slay the dragon or save the princess? Well, maybe you can do both. Maybe you can not pay the ransom and get your files back. That would be the best outcome. But sometimes we have to go ahead and make one of these difficult choices. Proper preparation is going to go ahead and lay the foundation for your success and your ability to hold on to your job. That's it for today. Thank you very much for your time and attention. As always, please follow us. CISO Tradecraft. If you're on LinkedIn, you can follow us there. And we'll make sure that you learn about the new episodes. Let other people know about it. And then let us know if we're doing something to help you out with your life, your job, your career. And we're really glad to help out. So until next time, thank you very much. Stay safe out there. This is G. Mark Hardy for CISO Tradecraft.